theyeshiva.net. Self-esteem versus divine God-esteem. Welcome, Agutavach, to one and all. You are on Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's weekly Mitzayi Shabbos radio show from 10 to 11 p.m. And tonight's topic is self-esteem, the role of self-esteem, the balance between self-esteem and religion, self-esteem or God-esteem. We have a special guest uh, with us this evening, and hopefully it'll be a very meaningful and exciting show. The lines are open, the emails are open. Some of you have already sent in questions before Shabbos. You can email your questions or remarks to rabbiyyradio at gmail.com, or you can call in 845-354-2444. I'm going to begin, we're going to get uh, very soon to the telephones and to the emails, but I'm going to begin with a uh, powerful insight I saw in in the book, the Sefer Lekutei Torah, on Parsha Shlach, this week's new Parsha. Lekutei Torah is, of course, the great Hasidic work by the Baal HaTanya, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, who passed away in Tovkofay and Gimel in 1812. And in Lekutei Torah, Parsha Shlach, he gives a very potent and relevant interpretation to the verse where the Miraglim, the 12 spies who go and scout the land and come back with a disastrous report, and one of the key phrases that the Miraglim, the spies, uh, declare and use is, Eretz Oicheles Yoishveha. It's a land that literally, it eats up its inhabitants. It consumes, it destroys its inhabitants. And the Baal Atanya, the Alter Rebbe in Lakuta Torah, explains this verse psychologically and spiritually. That what the Miraglim was basically saying is, that the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, the holy land, the life saturated with holiness and godliness is one that destroys its inhabitants. It crushes its adherence. It represses their individuality and their personality. Or if we want to use today's language, it's not good for self-esteem. So we have a very wonderful guest, and I'm very honored and very proud that we have him on our radio show Rabbi Manus Friedman, who's with us. Rabbi Manus Friedman is a world-renowned noted author and lecturer, the author of Why Doesn't Anybody Blush Anymore? He is a lecturer, a writer, a speaker, a philosopher, a, um, a, a counselor and mentor uh, to many, many people and has been teaching classes, seminars, workshops, retreats, uh, thousands of Jews over a, a career of more than four decades. Rabbi Friedman... Agutavach. Agutavach, how are you? Hoidul Hashem, thank God. Thank you so much for joining uh, our show. And I'm going to begin right away with a question that came in on the email uh, Friday afternoon when we uh, promoted the show. And I'm going to quote a, a question by a man named Simcha who wants to know two things. He wants to know, Rabbi Friedman, what is self-esteem? Can you give us a definition for self-esteem? What is it, and how important is it? Oh, well, that's a basic question. <laughs> it's right down to the issue. 
self-esteem is probably the best thing in the world and also the worst thing in the world. It's like the Eitz Hadas, good and bad. Because the, 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 the sense of self can be a very healthy thing and it can be the worst thing. In fact, uh, probably before the coming of Mashiach, the, uh, the big issue is the, the sense of self and in a very unhealthy way. So what is, what is a healthy self? A healthy self is a self that you can get past. If you get stuck in the self or get hung up on it, either because you have low self-esteem or because you have high self-esteem, either way, being stuck in oneself is a very, uh, certainly ungodly uh, condition, but it's also an unhealthy one. So what is a good self-esteem? One that you can laugh at. People who can laugh at themselves are healthy. I don't know if that's helpful, but uh, I think that sets the tone for our conversation. Mm. So here is a question that somebody asks. Is it true, as I feel, that secular people have more self-esteem than religious people for the very simple reason? They are taught that they can be comfortable with their emotions. Not every emotion is challenged. They're not told how you have to feel, how you're not allowed to feel, how you're supposed to feel, what's wrong, what's right. They don't have to conform to certain emotions that are acceptable in the religious community. Does that re- is it really true that secular people have a better, they're more comfortable with themselves? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know uh, what, what the statistics are. But you, you can't really choose your emotions. Things happen that, uh, that, that, that arouse emotions. So if something is annoying you and you get very anxious, or something is, uh, is insulting you and you get very angry, or something is, is toying with you and you get jealous, it, it makes no difference really whether you're religious or not. You've got to deal with these emotions. You've got to handle them. Now, the question of self-esteem, do, do non-religious people have a, a more comfortable sense of self? I'm not sure. They may have fewer issues to worry about. Obviously, they're not worried about going to heaven or to hell. <laughs> that's, one, that's one thing off, off, their, uh, off their list. But, but that's, I don't know if that's a, a real concern for... Uh, for the average person or for the religious person. It's, it's also true that a religious person who is arrogant will tend to be even more arrogant because he knows God is on his side and he's the good guy. Mm. So I don't know, it balances out, I guess, and we all end up having the same problem in the end anyway. Okay, so somebody asks, somebody asks this question, um, how do I reconcile... Religion, maybe it's similar to the last question, but in different words. How do I reconcile two uh, values that I think are very important? One is a value called Kabbalah's Oil Malcha Shamayim, accepting the yoke of the kingdom of God, or what's called Bittel, a certain sense of selflessness and obedience and self esteem. They seem to me as terrible opposites. Mm. Well, one, one good image I think that would be very helpful is Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, I would assume, had a very positive and good Mm self-image. 
I don't think he thought he was an idiot. <laughs> it's all and relative. If, right. And if he did, I think people would correct him. On the other hand, he had a very deep sense of humility standing in front of a universe that dwarfed him and made him feel tiny so that the good self-image becomes irrelevant in, uh, in, in the presence of something so awesome and magnificent. But let's, let's back up and go, and go to, the, uh, to the definitions themselves. What does it mean uh, to be humble? What, what does it mean to, to not be arrogant? It doesn't mean to have a distorted view of oneself. If Albert Einstein thought he was an idiot, that would not be humility. That would really be an idiot. <laughs> and he really would be out of touch with reality. A smart person knows he's smart. If he's the smartest in the class, then he must know that he's the smartest in the class. Moshe Rabbeinu was the honor of Ma'id. He was the, the most humble person of all on, on, on the face of the earth, and he didn't know that he was Moshe Rabbeinu? Right. Or he, he thought he was chopped liver? He knew who he was. He knew what his abilities were. He knew how unique he was. And he knew that no one could compare to him in so many different uh, qualities and, and, uh, and mindless. The humility consists of the fact that he didn't give himself credit for it. Yes, I'm smart, but that doesn't make me more important than you. That's, that's humility. And it's important to know people who hate themselves and are even self-destructive love themselves too much. Because they're, they're, they're complaining and they're suffering uh, from, from a sense of, of significance and, uh, and preciousness. Even if you hate yourself, you're still precious to yourself. And, and because they can't tolerate uh, the, the lack of perfection or the lack of fulfillment of their will, of their need, of their demands, and they're precious, they can't live with that. What do you mean I can't have what I need or what I want? And I can't have it because I'm a shlomazel, I'm a loser, and, and, and I hate myself. But I still feel my self-importance. So self-love isn't always the kind of love that we think about usually. Self-love means I'm precious. Even if I hate myself, even if I'm a total loser, but the fact that I'm a loser is so important and significant to me, and it's not significant to anybody else. Nobody suffers over the fact that I'm a loser except me. I once told this couple who finished complaining about each other, and they, and they you know, stopped for a breather, and the husband said, boy, do we have a serious problem. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not that serious. He says, really? I said, yeah, it's not so serious, because I really don't care. <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. In fact, all the people in the room out there don't care. Uh, you told me your own mother doesn't want to hear about it anymore. If nobody cares, how important can it be? But, of course, they care because they're precious to themselves. So the humility doesn't mean uh, deny your talents or deny who you are, what you are, and what you're capable of. It simply means don't be so precious. 
Yes, you're smart, but it doesn't make you any more precious than the average person. You're, you're, we're all in this together, and we're all significant in God's plan. And if you start to feel like you're more special, uh, that, that's not healthy. Right. We have here on, we have Rabbi Manus Friedman here on our radio show, and uh, we're discussing uh, the balance between self-esteem and religion, self-esteem versus a God esteem. The lines are open and the emails are open. People are sending in emails. RabbiYYRadio at gmail.com. You can email us with questions or remarks. You can also call in live, 845-354-2444. That's 845 354 Two four four four. Our friend Lee here is managing uh, the telephone lines, and uh, we're going to go directly to uh, some more emails. Um, Rabbi Friedman, I have this question. I am trying to recuperate my whole life from a very, very difficult upbringing. Um, I grew up in a home that was extremely dysfunctional, and I'm constantly gravitating towards uh, codependence. It's very taxing. It's very stressful. I grew up with no normal sense of self, and uh, I'm trying to find it. What's your advice to me? Uh, not knowing what the, what the situation is, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is, are you getting good help? Are you working with good people? Are you getting the help you need? You can't pull yourself out by your bootstraps. So get good help and work on it and, uh, and get yourself back together. But but don't don't think of it as any more difficult or any more negative than a person who needs to go to rehab to learn how to walk again after an accident. It's painful. It's difficult. It's challenging. But it's uh, it's recovering, recovering from uh, from uh, an unfortunate uh, challenge that God put on your plate, and uh, go from there. Let me tell you a very, very quick story that's really powerful. I was invited to speak someplace in South America. It was a long, miserable plane flight. Um, I went from Minnesota to New York to, to Texas to, to Buenos Aires. And by the time I got there, I was really in a bad mood. I was miserable. The, chair, the, the seat was uncomfortable. The food was all, um, they didn't have the meals. They, if they did have them, it would have been worse. <laughs> but by the time I got to the airport there, I just couldn't wait to get to the hotel room. And the shliach there, the Chabad shliach, picks me up, and he's driving me to the hotel room. And on the way, he says, oh, uh, we arranged for you to speak to a woman who had suffered a tragedy, She's very depressed. She hasn't left her house in six months. And we finally prevailed on her to agree to talk to you. So we're going to stop there on the way to the hotel. And you'll talk to her. Well, I was not happy with that at all. I, first of all, I don't know. What do you mean talk to her? She's severely depressed. She had a terrible tragedy. What do you mean talk to her? You make it sound so easy. And secondly, why didn't you ask me? Where did you make this arrangement you promised? You, you set up an appointment. You didn't ask me. You didn't warn me. Maybe, maybe I'd agree if it was next week or something, but not directly from the airport. Anyway, I was really upset. I guess you have a good self-esteem. <laughs> Wait to the end of the story. <laughs> uh, 
anyway, so uh, we had, you know, she, they had already promised that we would come and see her, so there was no no choice really. So we went. We come up to the house, and she tells me this tragic story about this wonderful boy that she had. He was 19 years old, and he died in a car accident. He was special in every way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So trying to say something positive, I said, that is amazing. That's an incredible kid you had there. And you had him for 19 years. Oh, she was not happy with that at all. Mm. She didn't, didn't go for it. So I said, I, I understand, of course, the shock. It came so suddenly out of nowhere. You were totally unprepared for this. But if, if, if the Ebershter had come to you up front, and if the Ebershter had said to you, I have this great neshama that is going to come down into this world for 19 years, and I need to find someone to be his mother. And he would ask you, would you please be the mother of this special kid for 19 years? No shock. Up front. What would you have said? And I'm, I was sure that she would say yes. Most people do. Mm-hmm. But she surprised me. She said, if I was asked, I would say absolutely not. So in the spur of the moment, I said, well, then it's a good thing that he didn't ask you. The flood of tears that, that came loose, it was, it was like a mobble. She finally had a therapeutic cry, and her eyes that were dull and lifeless came back to life. Literally like in front of my eyes. And I think that of all the conversations and of all the things that I've ever uh, experienced in dealing with people and talking to people, this, this has got to be way up there in the most significant and the most meaningful moment. So now we're in the car going to the hotel room. And I think to myself, had they asked me whether I wanted to talk to this woman, I would have said absolutely not. And it would have been the wrong answer. So when we stop and think about it, it is such a kindness on God's part that he doesn't ask us. Because we would just embarrass ourselves with the wrong answer almost every time. Would you like to have a challenge in your life? No, thanks. No. Would you like to have some uphill struggles? Absolutely not. And we would end up being such wimps. We would end up being such insignificant creatures because we don't have the confidence in ourselves that the Ibishta has in us. So he puts things on our plate, and he doesn't ask. And somehow we rise to the occasion and we manage, and, and we become real people. So the, all these challenges, whether physical or emotional, uh, disadvantages in childhood, it's all coming from above. It's all put on our plate for a reason. And we can handle it if we, if we accept the challenge. But if we don't know where this is coming from and we feel like life is a jungle and who knows what's going to happen next, if this can happen, anything can happen, as if there is no God and nobody's in charge, well, that, that really destroys us completely. Mm. So as long as we know this is from above, this is coming min it's on your plate for a reason, and... 
the Eberster feels that you can handle it. That's, that's very helpful. We're on here with Rabbi Manus Friedman discussing the role of self-esteem in, in Judaism. What does it mean? You can email your questions to Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com or call in live 845-354-2444. That's 845-354-2444 or Rabbi YY Radio at gmail.com. Let me read a, another email from Gavriel. So he says as follows, and he wants to have uh, some direction and guidance here. He says, you're painting a very nice and sweet picture, but let me tell you what I'm struggling with. I don't feel that I have a, a sense of self, and every time somebody tells me what to do, it just reinforces to me that I simply don't exist. I cannot deal with somebody saying, the Torah says, Hashem says, this is right, this is wrong. I don't feel I'm in this whole, I don't feel I exist in this whole process. So the question, the question is, Rabbi Friedman, do you really feel that there is maybe a gulf between two types of people, people who maybe instinctively just take to religion from a healthier place, and people who everything of religion they interpret in a distorted way because they're not showing up to it with with a balanced or normal sense of self, and are these people being being addressed? That's a very good question, Gavriel. It is. And there's a lot of truth to it. Of course, uh, we can come to, to Yiddishkeit, we can come to Torah already damaged and already you know, with a problem. And then everything tastes sour, everything sounds negative, and we walk away with a completely distorted picture. In general, I think that we need to, to rethink how we present Torah in, in, in classrooms. Hmm. Not in special cases, but in, in all cases. What exactly are we saying to people when we tell them that there's an Ibishter and he created the world with a plan and he put mm. you here for a purpose and he wants you to do his mitzvahs and when you do the mitzvahs, something magnificent happens? What, how exactly do we present this? Mm. Because if you present it wrong, it can be very, very distasteful and, and objectionable. So, Rabbi Friedman, I, I want to I hear more about this, because somebody sends you an email and says, forgive me, I read the Torah, God seems to be always punitive and always jealous. Why in the world does he say in the Ten Commandments, Kikel Kanahu? He takes me out of Egypt, he's revealing to himself to me once in history, and all he can say about himself is that he's jealous and he's going to remember the sins from fathers to children for generations? I mean, we're always taught not to be jealous, to be comfortable in our own skin. Why is God always angry and always jealous? Yeah, and then we're told <laughs> to not take it literally and don't believe it. <laughs> it's not true. He's not jealous. He's not angry. He doesn't care. <laughs> it's very confusing. It is very confusing. So, so let me ask you: What do you think would be if we if we start with a clean slate? Okay, mm. you, you go into a classroom, young, impressionable souls. There was no distortion, no toxicity, no dysfunctionality. You know, in that uh, perfect messianic world, and you're going to present uh, Judaism from the bottom up, foundational to to young, intelligent, sensitive, beautiful, majestic souls. What is its underlying message? Who is God? What does he want? What is he all about? What is Judaism? Hmm. 
you want this on one foot or can I put my other foot down? (laughs) (laughs) It's cute that we want to answer these questions in in sound bites. But but let's at least start at the beginning. If we if we present Torah properly and present the Ebrishta properly, those few words are so awesome and so inspiring. In the beginning, meaning before I had any needs, before I had any issues, before I had any problems, before I had any any uh, talents and 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 successes. Before anything, Bereshis, at the beginning, Bara Elikim Eseshamayim, God created all of this. Now, what that tells you right off at the beginning is that you didn't ask to be created. You don't need to be here. You were not there at the beginning. You didn't start this, this whole thing, the good and the bad. It all started with him. So in the beginning, before you had needs, before you had wants, before you existed, the Ebrishter created the world. And the obvious question is, why? He is perfect. He's, he was always perfect. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, you know, and Bligvul and Shleimusa de Koyla. He's everything and he creates this world? Why? And the same question is, Avraham was minding his own business, he was a philosopher, he discovered that the Eberstedt is real, and that there's only one Eberstedt. He was doing great. He didn't ask the Eberstedt for anything, but the Eberstedt comes to him. Vayemer Hashem el Avraham. The first communication between the Eberstein and Avram came from the Eberstein. God initiated the relationship. He came to him wherever he was living, and he said, come with me, be mine. And the same thing happened in Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. You know, we, we long ago got over the fact that we don't have to build pyramids anymore. Hmm. Why do we celebrate Pesach? We can't get over the fact that we're free. What we can't get over is the fact that the Abish that came to Mitzrayim to take us out. He initiated the relationship. And that's why we can't say no to him. And then what happens at Matan The first time that the Abish speaks to the Jewish people as a whole, he introduces himself by saying, Anechi Hashem, I God, creator of the whole universe, Elikecha am yours. This is why I created the world, because I want to be yours, and I want you to be mine. If we present this to children starting to, to learn olive bays, where is the negativity? Where is the ugliness? Not only... Is there, is there this, this magnificent, intimate relationship that the Eberstedt is seeking? But he tells us that even if we say no, even if we misbehave, even if we give him a hard time, he will react, he will respond, he will argue with us, and he'll fight with us, but he will never give up on us. 
That's what it means, jealous. If you love somebody, of course you're jealous. If you're not jealous, you don't love them. Could you explain? Well, imagine a man says, I'm married to this wonderful woman, but if she's interested in other men, I'm not jealous. Mm. What do you mean you're not jealous? Then you're not a husband. So it's like God is obsessed with us. He's madly in love. There you go. Let's go to the telephone lines. We have... uh we have people calling in. Rafal from New York. Rafal, are you here? Hey, good well. So I wanted to ask about, um, you spoke a little bit about how we can imbue, um, just now about you imbue our kids with the right of self-esteem to understanding where Hashem comes from. But how do we really assess and know, um, you know, that our self-esteem or our family's self-esteem is on the right path and is the correct self-esteem that the Torah prescribes? If a person is asking himself, do I have a healthy self-esteem? Should I work on it? Should I forget about it? Am I overdoing it? Am I underdoing it? Again, the, the healthiest attitude is, I am what I am. I won't deny my talents. I won't exaggerate my faults. And I won't hide my faults. I am what I am. And we're all pretty much in the same boat. We've all got our peckle. We've all got our, our, our flaws. So I am what I am. Now, how am I supposed to uh, sum it all up, and how am I supposed to handle that? The healthiest uh, self-esteem is a person who can get past himself. It's not about me. I am what I am, but it's not about me. My life, and here's the punchline for, for, for good health and for holiness. This is good psychologically and religiously. My life, and I call it my life, but I know that my life is not about me. It was never about me. Not because I'm not important or because I'm a loser. No, no, that's the nature of creation. God gives people life, and it's not meant for you to hoard it or to keep it for yourself. Or to, or to be absorbed in yourself, in your life, you were given a life so that you can do something for others, including Hashem. So yes, it's my life, but it's not about me. It's my body, but it's not about my body. My body is there to be able to serve, to be able to do something past myself, bigger than myself. And how do I know that I can do that? If I can laugh at myself, yes, whatever it is, I, I don't defend myself. If you tell me that I'm a liar, um, I've lied, yes, true. Am I the biggest liar in the world? I wouldn't be arrogant enough to say that. I'm sure some people lie better than me because I'm just the average guy. I'm not exceptional. So, no, I'm not the biggest liar, and yes, I'm a loser, but I'm not the biggest loser. <laughs> In fact, recently, very recently, the mental health field, psychologists, particularly child psychologists, have, uh, ca- have come out with a statement that the emphasis on positive reinforcement, building up the child, telling him he's great, telling him he's the best, always supporting him and always validating him and all of that language that has been popular for 20 years, 
they are now saying that that was a mistake. And that children raised on this very narrow diet are turning out to be antisocial. They feel completely entitled. They cannot accept a no. There is no no. And to the point where they become so narcissistic, they'll even do things to destroy themselves as long as it feels good at the moment. Because they can't say no to anything in themselves. So now they're saying, the, the mental health people, never tell your child he's the best. Say you're good. Say you're an okay kid. But don't say you're the best. It makes kids crazy. Because, it's, first of all, it's not true. Second of all, it, it, it annoys children. Because imagine if parents would say to their child, I love you unconditionally. Unconditionally. Isn't that the most beautiful kind of love? Unconditional love. The child feels completely rejected and ignored. You mean no matter what I do, you're just going to go ahead and love? So I don't count. So it's not even about me. You say you love me unconditionally. You don't even know who I am. I'm a little monster. I'm bad. I do bad things. I have bad thoughts. You don't care. You just want to love me. Well, then it's not about me. And so they try to get you to be angry at them, and they act out because they want to be real. When they're bad, you should be angry at them. So unconditional love is almost like I'm going to ignore you because I'm into loving, and that's all I'm going to do no matter what you do. Kids don't like it. It drives them crazy. So the Torah says, be balanced. Be balanced. There's the Yad Yemin Mikarevist, and the small deicha. Keep a balance. Not, not, not for your sake, for the child's sake. Maybe you are more comfortable loving than being disciplinarian. But the child needs to be disciplined. He's begging for it. So what do you and think? It, won't, it yeah. won't harm him. It'll make him healthier, stronger, because the strongest kid, if you want to talk about a healthy, uh, a healthy child... You see, in a secular world, the only strength a child has is self-confidence. He has to believe in himself, otherwise he's going to be a shmata, and people are going to take advantage of him, and who knows what's going to become of him. But we have a taser, which means we know what the truth is. We know right from wrong. Can you imagine a little kid who knows right from wrong? He doesn't need a good self-image to protect him. He's protected by his values. And just imagine an eight-year-old kid in a candy store, and he picks up a candy bar, and he looks at it to see if it's kosher. And if it's not kosher, he puts it back. That is a strong kid. That's a healthy child. This kid knows where he, what he's about. He knows where he belongs. He knows his borders. He knows. If he was depending on his self-esteem, and he... And he likes himself because he's the smartest kid in class, what's going to happen when he goes to high school and there are 10 kids smarter than him? And all his strength is gone. So it's a desperate attempt 
to give a child strength by building up his self-esteem. Build up his understanding of who he is, why he's here, what is right, what is wrong, where do you belong, whose child are you. Have an identity that is healthy, not a self-esteem that's much, much stronger, healthier, and more noble. Mm. Any sense? Rafal, you here? Okay, so Miriam asks this question. I like helping people, and I never know the right boundaries. I'm always scared that if I say no, I'm going to be selfish and narcissistic. On the other hand, I extend myself to the point that I have no time, I have no energy, I have no mental space, I'm destroying myself. And I don't know, how, do you, how does one have that balance between when you say yes to people and when you say no to people? On one hand, all the shiurim, all the classes I go to, they speak about chesed and chesed and giving and giving and it's not about you. And on the other hand, I feel that if, if I don't take care of myself and I don't say no, there's no me left to give. Very, very interesting question. Miriam, thank you. Rabbi Friedman. Let's, let's, uh, let's ask the question in the context of a mother. A mother, of course, is going to give and give all the time endlessly to her children. But she runs out of energy. She's getting tired. She's getting exhausted. She's, she's frazzled. What does she do? So there are two possibilities. One is you say to your child, look, I'm your mother uh, 18 hours out of the day, and that's really good. But the rest of the time, I got to take for myself. So after the 18 hours, don't call me, don't talk to me, don't bug me. It's my time. It's mommy time, right? That's one way. The other way is to say, I am your mother 24 hours a day. But right now, I can't pick my head up off the pillow, so I, I, can't, I can't help you. I'm just so exhausted. In, in the first case, you're saying that your mothering has its limits. I'm a mother 18 hours a day, but not the rest of the day. That's scary to a child. It takes away their security. What a mother should say is, I'm your mother all the time, and I will help you every time. If I can, mm. but you know, I'm just human. So sometimes I just fall asleep, but not like, I'm sorry, this is my time now. I got to be a little selfish also. So I'm going to take some time out and I don't want to hear from you. Uh, I don't know what that's going to do to a child. And the same with chesed. If you really believe in doing chesed and people need your help and you are helping them, you should feel wonderful. You should be able to make a special bracha thanking the Ebershter for giving you these opportunities, and it should give you energy rather than drain your energy. So when you start asking yourself, am I a loser? Am I being used? Am I giving too much? See, that, that's like a molek and, and that, that, that throws a, a monkey wrench into all your good intentions and drains you of, of the pleasure and the satisfaction that you're supposed to get from it. So, of course, there comes a point where you just can't anymore. So you go to sleep. Take a break and go eat because you have to, not because you would rather. No, I'd, I'd rather keep doing the chesed full time. There's nothing better. 
But being a human being, what can I do? I got to take some time to eat and I got to take some time to sleep and to uh, pay my bills or whatever else I need to do. Mm. Yitzchak asks, he says, I find myself at Shabbos meals always telling people what they want to hear. When I interact with people, I'm always afraid of their opinion. I always feel I have to fit in. I'm always caring about what other people think of me. I'm always afraid just to be who I really am. Does that mean I hate myself? What's the proper approach to fixing this? It makes me miserable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you hate yourself. It means you're very concerned with yourself. Mm. And, and uh, when you're not sure what you're doing about yourself and you get confused, then you start resenting it. Not yourself. You resent the predicament you're in. So this, this self-awareness, you see, is, is a, what is probably our biggest problem today. Are we too, too absorbed in ourselves? I mean, if you listen to the commercials on, on, on the radio, they used to sell every product by telling you how superior the product is. This car will go from, from zero to 60. This car will, will go so many miles up per gallon of gas. This, they, don't, they don't say anything about the product anymore. All they say is, you deserve. Hmm. Almost every product you deserve. Buy this hair product because you deserve beautiful hair. I find that particularly offensive because I'm bald. <laughs> Are you telling me I don't deserve hair? <laughs> what can you do to deserve hair? Uh, but buy this product for your pet because your pet deserves the best. Really? Do you know my pet? <laughs> what does it mean he deserves? What do we do to deserve? So here's a secret that can help many, many people. The question of deserving is totally artificial. It's made up. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Nobody deserves anything. Forget about it. There is no deserving. There's opportunity to do good. And even that we don't deserve. It's a free gift. Life is a gift. We're given life for free. We're given our health for free. We're even given our problems for free. We don't deserve it. The whole question of deserving is a depressing thought. Why do the righteous suffer? They don't deserve that. Good question. The answer is nobody deserves. The bad guys who succeed is not because they deserve. And the good guys who suffer, God forbid, is not because they deserve to suffer. It's all part of the mission. A soldier is given a mission to do a dangerous task. What, is he being punished? He deserves to be in, in a dangerous place? No, he's capable of doing the job, so he's given the job. If we stop thinking about deserving, and, and here again, going back to the original, quite one of the earlier questions, does, does the misreading of Torah make you crazy? One of the ways that it makes you crazy is it introduces this whole notion of deserving. Hmm. And there's no such thing. We're way beyond deserving. Abishta created the world for free. He doesn't charge us anything. He didn't check to see if we deserve it. He gave us uh, 
a, a, a meaningful task. He wants a meaningful relationship with us, and we have to be absolutely grateful. Hmm. Let's go back to the telephone lines. We're on with Rabbi Manus Friedman, distinguished, uh, world-renowned author, speaker, lecturer, and teacher. We have Mendel from Monticello. Go ahead. Mendel, are you there? Shavua Tov to you, Rabbi. Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov. You're on. All right. My question is for Rabbi Friedman. So we hear radio commercials. We hear classes, Torah classes. We listen to um, different ideas of how to live and how to behave and how to think. But like you said, there is so much information out here. What is your solution? What's your antidote? What's your focus? What do I need to focus on among all this hundreds and hundreds of voices and messages around, which frankly does not give me a one single solution. You mean solution to what? To what issue? Well, we're talking about self-esteem. We're talking about about, um, our beliefs, because we have to live with our beliefs, and with our beliefs, Um, the difficulties of life take over. So my question to you, Rabbi, is what sort of commercial do I need to focus on? Um, Maybe I I do have hair, so maybe that commercial is for me. Um, Maybe not. Maybe I should focus on a different voice or a um, a different pattern or heavier or um, understanding in order to actualize my potential and really be satisfied with my self-esteem, my beliefs, my family, and my life. I think I, think I know what you're asking. There, there are two, two words that should be our guiding lights. Chesed and Chayim. Torah is Torah's Chesed and it's Torah's Chayim. What we need to do is to find the life and the kindness in Torah and apply it to our lives. Everything in Torah is about living and about kindness. In other words, a pleasurable life. The kindness makes the life pleasurable. The first thing is, are we doing that for others? In what way are we adding life around us? And are we adding a pleasant life or not such a pleasant life? And for ourselves, we look in Teda, because Teda is Teda's Chayim and and Teda's Chesed, we look in Teda for guidelines for the how-to. How do you make life kind and alive. 
So when you find something in Torah that sounds like he doesn't let you live, then you're misunderstanding it. Check it out again. Find the life-giving side or, or, or aspect and the kindness within it. Let me give another example. What does it mean? Tamur u kitev Hashem. You know, Benny Friedman's popular song. <laughs> David HaMelech says... Coming from an hey, objective person. Huh? Coming from an objective person. Right, right, right. Uh, David HaMelech says, if you will taste, which means if you will do something special to get a taste of what the Ebeshter is, you will discover something you didn't expect. You will discover that the Ebeshter is good. Is this really a surprise? And, and, what, and what if we don't taste? What, what, what do we think of him? As not good? So here's, here's the, the, the really helpful insight. What does it mean that someone is good? If I give tzedakah, I did good. Am I good? Maybe not. Bad people can give tzedakah. So what I did was good, but am I good? So what if I do ten good things, a hundred good things? Now am I good? Or did I just do a lot of good? But I'm still not good. So when we say a guter mensch, what, what exactly do we mean by that? What makes goodness in, a, in an individual? The meaning of it is, I can give tzedakah because it's the right thing to do. I want to do the right thing. So then I do the right thing, and the tzedakah is right. I'm still not necessarily a good person. But then there's a person who gives tzedakah because he just doesn't understand. It doesn't make sense to him, and it doesn't feel right. Why should I have food when somebody else is hungry? Their hunger is worse than mine. Their need is bigger than mine. They, they should have before I have. That's a good person. In other words, the ability to put someone else before yourself, that is personal goodness. And we have that in our nature. We are by nature Rahmanim and Gemle Chasadim. We have this great talent and this great capacity putting others before ourselves. Now here's the amazing thing. Tamuru, if you will taste, if you will learn the uh, those those parts of Torah that give you a taste of godliness, you will discover that the Ebrister didn't just do good; he is good. And what makes him good? He he finds you more important than he finds himself. You are more important to him than he is to himself. And that's why this infinite God, who had the whole world to himself, restricts himself, lowers himself, humbles himself, denies himself, so that you can exist. Hmm. Moshe, beautiful, thank you. Moshe from Los Angeles. Go, go ahead. Moshe, you're here? Yes, hello, rabbis. 
Gutwach. Gutwach, Moshe. Gutwach. And I don't mean to be, uh, I don't mean to be uh, insensitive, because the question I want to ask is not on the topic that you're talking right now. Go ahead. Um, my question is, there's a lot of recent things going on in the media. Um, it's, most people know about it. And I was wondering if there's an idea in Halacha or Kabbalah or Hasidus about a man wanting to be a woman or a woman wanting to be a man. Because I am, I do not, I'm not such a learned person to know of these ideas of, of, in, in Hasidus and in Kabbalah as such like that. Well, if you're asking me, I, I don't know of any place where it talks about uh, transgenders stuff. I don't know. I know it says that a man shouldn't wear a woman's garments and not to confuse himself about his gender. But uh, the people you're talking about have a, a very serious discomfort in their lives, and uh, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what causes that or what what the cure for that might be. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. The, the reason why I'm asking is because there's, the, there's the, the, the famous saying that the daughter of the, of the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe, was a woman, was a man's soul tra- in a woman's body. So there obviously is such an idea as a man being in a woman's body and a woman being in a man's body. Well, up to, up to a point, of course, that's true. You see men who are more feminine than other men, and you see women more masculine than other women. But it seems that there's like a tipping point where it becomes unbearably unnatural or something. That, that I don't know. But yes, some, some women are, uh, are very masculine in their talents and in their abilities. It doesn't mean that they can't live with themselves. Hmm. But do, do you believe that it is a mental illness or that it, or it is something in the mind and the brain? Or could it really stem from the idea that it's a, a woman's soul in a, in a man's body, or such like that? It could be. I don't know. Hmm. All right. Thank you, Rabbi. Okay. Another question, uh, Rabbi Friedman. We only have a few minutes left, so we'll be able to take maybe one or two questions. We're on with Rabbi Manis Friedman. You could make your call to 845 2444. Uh, we have four minutes left, and we're on with Rabbi Manas Friedman. I do want to say before the next question, Rabbi Friedman is in the middle of giving a fascinating teleseminar on, uh, on Shalom Bias, on peace in the home. And if you would like to, receive, to, to tune into that, you can go to his website, which is itsgoodtoknow.org. It's good to know. It's good to know, no? It's good to know.org. And if you go to the store there, there's a store, and you'll see the teleseminar in Shalom Bayis. And uh, his office was kind enough to offer, and that is you can use the coupon code YY, okay? <laughs> and you'll get 25% off the original price. So again, you want more of Rabbi Friedman? He's giving a seminar now on uh, peace in the home. Good marriage, thriving marriage. It's good to know that or go to the store. You can tune into the seminar and by uh, using the coupon code YY, that's two Ys, you can get a 25% off. Rabbi Friedman, something is bothering me. All my life I have heard, it says in the Torah, you should love God. I don't love him. Instinctively, when I, when I hear the word God, I feel repulsed. 
and I feel a certain type of hatred. I guess it's a fear. It's a very scary fear. How do I cleanse myself from this? It's a good question. Yeah. This comes from Yosef, yeah? Yes, that's why I was saying that we are we need to be much more careful about how we present the Torah and the Eberster because we've given him really a bad reputation, terrible reputation. So let me give you again a quick uh, a correction in how we think of him. It comes Yom Kippur, and you tell your non-Jewish friends that you're going to be fasting all day, you're going to be repenting, you're going to be doing tshuva, you're going to be asking for forgiveness because you're afraid that if you don't get his forgiveness for the sins you've committed, you're not going to live through the year, you're going to suffer, ba'esh, ba'mayim, whatever, whatever. You know, the non-Jew would probably think, what kind of a God do you have? Mm. I mean, we know the non-Jewish thinking, we know what we did to you for 2,000 years. So the Ebershta speaks to you, what, 3,000 years ago. And then he doesn't repeat himself. He doesn't talk to you after that. He puts you through 3,000 years, mostly of suffering and displacement and disruptions and, and all sorts of things. 2,000 years of unmitigated uh, misery. And then you forgot to do a mitzvah, and he is angry at you to the point where he's going to punish you for that? What kind of a God do you have? And they would be so right. It's a chilul Hashem to even suggest such a thing. We have 40 seconds, so what's the substitute for that? The substitute is, Yom Kippur means the Eberster wants to forgive you more than you need to be forgiven because the Eberster feels terrible for what he has put us through, hmm. although it's necessary because of the vast eternal plan. But is, could God possibly be indifferent to all of, to all of the, the, the tzadahs that we've been through? And he doesn't understand that after all of that, we could forget to do a mitzvah or we could forget and do a sin. Mm. Is there a Jew alive today who you can say is sinning intentionally? He knows what God is. He knows what a mitzvah is. He knows what holiness is. And he spitefully goes against it. Wow. Thank you so much, Rabbi Manus Friedman. Thank you all for tuning in. Have an awesome week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.